Hello and welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast. I'm your host, Des Latham, and this is episode 9, where we look at Kimberley and the dreaded Cecil John Rhodes. Our view shifts to the western reaches of South Africa, the southwestern to be specific. Last week, we watched how Winston Churchill was captured at Chivoli, south of Colenso, on the main line to Ladysmith, where the wretched 13,000 British troops were surrounded by Boers. That was also near the mighty Tugela River. Now we're close to the Orange River, the longest in South Africa. It lies north of Cape Town between that port and Kimberley. The decision had been taken for the British Army Corps Central Group to push on over the river and towards Kimberley, where Cecil John Rhodes had been telegraphing almost daily that the city was soon to be overrun by Boers. General Methuen's force was based near Nauport on the main railway line between Daar and Bloemfontein, preparing for a push towards Kimberley, which lay 140 kilometres to the northwest. A doddle, they thought. Perhaps not. We'll turn our attention in a short while to what was happening inside Kimberley itself. In the meantime, let's consider the approach to this symbolic city with its electric streetlights, diamond mines, and the bleating imperialist Cecil John. Methuen's force was poised to strike, but he needed some sort of intelligence about where the Boers were exactly and in what kind of numbers. It was really unbelievable that the Boers had failed to blow up the railway bridge across the Orange River, which was not very deep but was very wide and could prove catastrophic during a crossing in the rainy season. Why had the Boers failed to blow it up? It's clear that while the British army was almost completely clueless at this point about how to fight a mobile, well-armed, modern guerrilla army, the Boers were also almost completely clueless about the basics of modern strategy. They really missed a trick in seizing the bridge, which would have made things very difficult for the British who relied on the railway to move their army. Kruger's logic was to let the British cross, then hit them at some point in the future and cause massive casualties. This, as we've heard in the last podcast, is an acceptable tactic, but only where the enemy is contained. And South Africa, across the Orange River at this point, is vast and open, dominated by hundreds of kilometers of scrubland and felt, and virtually no obvious geographical position where the British could be funneled or contained. Nevertheless, on we go. Methuen was now getting used to the African felt, the dust, the heat, and the sudden thunderstorms which brewed up in less than an hour and could dump 20 millimeters of rain in 45 minutes. But his men hadn't followed a few other basic orders which they were rapidly to regret, particularly the officers. When these men arrived, they flashed their power for all to see with gleaming epaulets and badges of rank. Imagine looking out on a late afternoon and seeing a small twinkling light flashing from up to two kilometers or more away. That is an easy target. Julian Rolfe of the Daily Mail was a war correspondent who described what happened next as he'd heard that a clash was likely at the Orange River crossing and hired a horse and buggy and drove there. We have heard that a patrol is cut off by a large force of Boers, he wrote and every man jack in the place has gone to their relief in the train. Also newly arrived was a major hall of the Royal Munster Fusiliers, who was standing in this dusty spot in the middle of Africa, as if direct from a London drawing room. 
not a speck of dust on his creaseless leather putties, every star and button and buckle shining like a woman's jewellery, wrote Rolf. The felt shimmered away before them as they stood on this little hill near their railway bridge, searching for signs of the missing patrol and the other men. The small dust devils that swirl here through most of summer could be seen across the felt for around 50 kilometres, almost half the way to their target, Kimberley. But where were the Boers and their friends? They thought they saw the train, then it disappeared in the heat mirage, behind the undulating hills. Then perhaps they saw horses, but they couldn't be sure. Like their British colleagues far to the northeast in Natal, where they had come up against the Boer already and suffered greatly from Boer tactics, Methuen's patrol had discovered the terror that was the smokeless ammunition used by the Boers and also their ability to hit a target on a horse from more than a kilometre away. For an army steeped in the tradition of marching straight towards an enemy in a box shape and firing at close quarters and then using the bayonet, this was anatema. The battlefield was really now many kilometres wide and long, not to mention the effect of cannon, which could reach up to 10 kilometres. You really did stop seeing the whites of your enemy's eyes. All you saw were the whites of your comrades' eyes staring sightlessly after taking a round. As Pakenham describes, the Boers appeared to be an army of ghosts. Finally, the train, which had been dispatched to find the patrol, returned, and it was not a pretty sight. Colonel George Goff's reconnaissance group had taken the brunt of this new war. Lieutenant Colonel Falconer was dead, Lieutenant Wood dying. Two other officers were wounded, along with two privates. In the large scheme of things, you'd say, well, is this a war? It sounds like a normal drive-by shooting in Chicago. Except this was war, and the vast majority of wounded were officers. Because of their jewellery, which flashed in the light like signals saying, shoot me, and the Boers duly obliged. The British were horrified. How dare these savage Boers shoot officers? It just goes to show how anachronistic the initial planning and training was. The Boers were far more logical in their approach. Shoot the snake's head. It can't do much after that. So Julian Rolfe, the war correspondent for the Daily Mail, wrote his story, saying that of the six casualties in the small engagement, four were officers. The Boers will not play the game fairly, moaned a soldier. But Rolfe was a proper reporter, and he was thinking. He wrote that the gleaming insignia, the stars, the buttons, the buckles, and the professional soldier were all very well in the drawing room, whereas in the sunshine of the felt, they looked like a heliograph. Against an enemy hidden a kilometre away, the British officers may as well have gone back to wearing red coats. But it must be said that they learned fast or they would be dead. By the end of the war, some were dressing in the same way as the Boers, not even in uniform, but in a conglomeration of military and non-military garb, which allowed them to blend in with both their men and the felt. Give General Redvers Buller some credit here. He had warned Methuen to tell his officers for goodness sake follow Simon's example in Natal and make officers dress like the men, and also take care with reconnaissance. Colonel Goff was immediately recalled to the Cape in disgrace, just by the by. He was the first in a long line of commanding officers, or COs, who were to be Stellenboschd, which was the phrase used because the British army base in the Cape was at Stellenbosch. Goff took the disgrace badly. He blew his brains out with his revolver. 
Tramping a short distance away was Methuen's army, which arrived at the crossing over the Orange River, expecting the Boers to attack at any moment, but they didn't. Instead, Methuen sent out his mounted recon unit of local men from South Africa, who formed a unit of 200 led by Major Mike Remington. They were called Remington's Tigers. They wore Boer hats with leopard-skin pajeree to distinguish them from the Boers, and all spoke Dutch, English, and local black languages. Isitswana, Isisutu, Isizulu, Isitkoza. Some even spoke San, or what at that time was called Bushmen. They also had an intimate knowledge of the local territory. Yet even these locals were affected by the particular unique aspect of this war. The distance the enemy could fire and hit a target, and during the day, none showed themselves clearly against the skyline. Methuen was also short of mounted troops, except for the Remington's Tigers, because he'd headed north earlier than his advisers in London had planned. So the horses they'd purchased from the USA, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, India, and even the Middle East had not arrived. He had a thousand men in total who were mounted, including the 200 Remington Tigers. Methuen and Buller had come up with a plan. Because of this shortage, he would follow the railway line north towards the town of Moda River, or Muddy River, and then continue onwards to Kimberley. One of the reasons they decided to push on early was the constant fear-mongering of Cecil John Rhodes besieged in Kimberley, whose actions would lead directly to the death of hundreds of British soldiers. While we've seen how the Boers had blundered by not destroying the railway line, they did expect Methuen to do exactly what he did next. On Tuesday 21st November 1899, Methuen's column was six kilometres long and clattered across the Orange River Bridge and then camped on the north side of the large river, awaiting possible attack. The British sang bawdy songs while Methuen lay in his tent that night reading Shakespeare's Henry IV He wrote in his diary that he was approaching Prince Hal's moment of glory, the battle scene. But what awaited Methuen? Before dawn on the 22nd, 8,000 men began to move north again after placing more wood on their acacia fires to both increase the smoke drifting along the flatland and to try and convince Boer spies that they were still there. So, in Kimberley, on the same morning, its commander, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Kekovich, did what he'd been doing every morning for more than a month. He climbed the 155-foot-high conning tower that had been built to facilitate long-distance viewing and stared through his telescope, looking south towards Methuen's army. De Beer's diamond mine had built the conning tower for the British army on top of one of their mine headgears. Kekovich had a wooden shed built below the tower and often slept here. From the tower, he could actually see almost as far as the Orange River, 140 kilometres away but his view was cut by two lines of copies or rocky hills at Spadefontein and Marchesfontein. For 13 kilometres around Kimberley, defences had been built called redoubts, all linked by telephone lines to the conning tower. While this allowed Kekovich to see a 360-degree arc around his city, it was also an ideal target for Boer sharpshooters and their nine-pounder cannon. Thomas Pakenham, the great author, has spent some time researching Kekovich and his nemesis with whom he shared a city, Cecil John Rhodes. I'm going to spend some time describing what he found, and I'm sure you, like me, will be galled. Or perhaps not, depending on how fond you are of Rhodes. Kekovich was 45 years old. He'd fought in a few of the smaller wars in the British Empire in the 1880s and 1890s, and he believed in doing everything by the book. 
Milner, who was back in the Cape and governor, had sent Kekovich to Kimberley before the war on a secret exploratory visit just to check on defences. Kimberley was only eight kilometres from the Free State border and Kekovich was given a half battalion of North Lancashires as well as six obsolete and tiny two and a half inch cannon. Kekovich though had transformed Kimberley in six weeks but faced significant challenges. Because the town had been built around a diamond discovery and not a geographical feature like a river, it had no easily accessible water, it had no woods and no hills. Its climate is extreme, Dust blows from the Kalahari Desert during summer where temperatures climb above 38 degrees and in winter freezing winds blow across the desert landscape that will kill a person in less than an hour. The diamond rush of the late 1860s really took off in 1870 and by the 1890s there were 20,000 immigrants from Europe and 30,000 black and coloured men and women living in the town. By now, it also accounted for an astonishing 90% of world diamond production worth £5 million a year. As with the gold mining in Johannesburg, what had taken place in two decades was the initial white miners were replaced by black labour who had been transported from across southern Africa. There was another reality. A single company controlled the entire production of diamonds, unlike Johannesburg where no one or two companies could seize control. And that was Cecil John Rhodes's De Beers. They owned the town, like something out of a bad Western novel, but made worse by the tens of thousands of lives he controlled, and in the midst of a war he began to manipulate. I know there are some listeners who respect and honour Rhodes's memory. I know that he was a man of his time. But he was far more than that, and I'm going to paint the picture for you. For he didn't just oppress blacks, which was the norm at this time, he poisoned everything he touched and seemed to have an almost sociopathic need to harm those around him, whether friend or foe. He began to set himself up as the commander-in-chief of the garrison and began to actively oppose Kekovich, the real commander. At first things went well between these two. De Beers provided a great deal of stored provisions for the garrison and those left in the town. By November, the Boers had cut off Kimberley's water at Riverton, the nearest stream, but De Beers' American engineer called George Labram managed to pump uh, water from a deep spring under the town. There were 4,600 soldiers in Kimberley. Some civilians had fled at the start of hostilities, but thousands of others had entered the area from smaller towns and villages. Kekovich had 600 regulars from the Lancashire Regiment, another 350-odd were Cape Police but more than 3,000 others were locally raised from amongst the men of the town, and naturally, they gravitated to Rhodes. Rhodes then whipped out over 400 rifles, six machine guns, and 700,000 rounds of ammunition as a memento to his support for the failed Jameson raid in 1896. The town was being shelled and bombarded on a daily basis at this stage, but the large mine dumps actually helped shield the town from the shells, and very little damage was caused, at least initially. Civilians describe how they became used to the technique of dealing with this sort of attack. A boom as the cannon went off miles away. Then they'd run to shelter against a wall or in a building, and whizz as the shell flew overhead, and then blast as it burst. Then a macabre incident occurred. People would rush to the site to find pieces of the shell, and they'd sell these to each other as mementos, sometimes for up to two pounds each. But it was deadly and no fun. The first casualty was a black woman who was on her way back from town when a shell killed her near the famous Kimberley Club. 
One morning, Kekovic climbed up his tower and saw a large group of men approaching and ordered the guns to open fire at point-blank range. Terribly, the group were Basutu mine workers that De Beers had basically kicked out of Kimberley and sent back to the villagers. Rhodes had told the British to force them out, saying, and I quote, This herd of savages would threaten the lives of the Europeans. The Boers, however, knew an opportunity when they saw one. They drove the poor men back to the city. Miraculously, none had been hurt in the point-blank fire, and Rhodes relented and said they should be put to work building a great avenue of vines, which were to become a monument to the siege in an almost Roman symbolic action. Thus things continued in Kimberley until the 13th of November, when Kekovich was roused from his slumbers in a shed under the conning tower by a messenger, who handed him a telegraph from Sir Redvers Buller, officer commanding Army Corps. Buller wrote, Civilians in Kimberley representing situation there as serious. Stop. Have heard nothing from you. Stop. Send appreciation of the situation immediately. Stop. Kekovich had been thrown a curve ball by Rhodes, who'd been cabling hysterically and constantly. Kekovich replied the situation was not critical. Then he sat back to think about what he would do about Rhodes. He decided to bite his lip, which was perhaps a mistake, if you consider what Rhodes was up to behind his back. Rhodes visited Kekovich a few days later and said he was alarmed by the lack of mounted troops in the garrison. The De Beers owner suggested raising a force of 2,000 men in Cape Town, then driving them through to Kimberley to join the army there. He would pay. Kekovich said he would think about it and suggest a course of action to Buller. Rhodes had a tantrum screaming, You damn soldiers are so loyal to one another, I verily believe if God Almighty was in a fix, you would refuse to get him out of it. Things were not going well between a powerful but ethically challenged businessman who owned Kimberley and had no rules, and a British commander who played by the rules. On the evening of 23rd November, two days after Methuen began his march across the Orange River, Kekovich received a coded telegram which arrived by runner. General leaves here with a strong force on November 21st and will arrive Kimberley on 26th unless delayed at Moda River. Stop. Look for signals by searchlight. But Kekovich was actually a step ahead. From his conning tower, he'd seen the Boer wagons begin moving south towards Moda River and had figured out what was happening. But it was good to get confirmation from his superiors and not from that vile Cecil John Rhodes. Kekovich knew that he should try and provide a diversion. So on the evening of the 25th, he ordered an attack on Boer guns at Carter's Ridge to the southwest. It was a huge success. 28 Boers killed, 32 taken prisoner. The British lost seven killed, 25 wounded. Then another of these Boer war curiosities occurred. The next day, a Boer medical officer rode into town and asked if he could buy medicines. And because Kekovich was a civilised soldier, he said yes. The volume, however, also confirmed that the Boers had suffered heavily in the attack, and Kekovich was emboldened. He'd failed, though, to capture any of the Boer guns, which began bombarding the town two more days later on the 27th and Methuen was now technically a day late. So early on the 28th of November, Kekovich's second attempt began. His men moved south of the town. He'd received a signal overnight from Methuen, saying, Lord Methuen thanks the merchants of Kimberley for their kind presence of cigars. He is a non-smoker. He has given them to his soldiers. 
That indicated the relief column had been stopped somewhere and were already 48 hours late. So he sent his men back to the ridge partly on the jibes of Rhodes, who'd almost taken to calling him a coward, but this time things would not end well for the British. Kikovich told the commanding officer of the unit, Scott Turner, not to attack Carter's Ridge if it was heavily defended. Unfortunately, Scott Turner appeared not to listen and launched his assault, which left him dead, along with 23 others, 32 were wounded. And the dead were mangled in a manner which indicated that the Boers had finished them off, which in those days was deeply shocking, although these days we kind of expect that kind of thing. That's when the poisonous toad we know as Rhodes stepped forward to lay his boot into the now-shaken Kekovich. Rhodes appeared to be tone-deaf to the terrible destruction and felt he had to say the following. Remember, you are not in command of a lot of Tommies now. Which basically was saying that the loss of British troops reduced Kekovich's command versus Rhodes' perceived command. And thus we'll leave these two, the soldier and the businessman, to return later in our series. But next week the attention will shift back to Methuen, who was going through his own private hell, 100 kilometres south of Kimberley. So join me, your host, Des Latham, next week for episode 10 of the Anglo-Boer War podcast. Please don't forget to leave a ranking on iTunes. It helps us rocket up the charts. Goodbye. O bring me back to the old Transvaal, there where my